Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Autosport International, live at the NEC. Come to Autosport International as we celebrate 70 years of the Italian supercar legend, Ferrari. Get up close to an amazing array of race and road cars. Meet motorsports legends, including Red 5 himself, Nigel Mansell. And there's more, much, much more. Don't miss Autosport International, live at the NEC on the 13th and 14th of January. Book online at autosportinternational.com. It's the Autosport Podcast. We explain how our top 50 drivers of 2017 works and answer some of the questions you have been asking about our ranking. Autosport's Top 50 Drivers of the Year is always a popular and controversial list, and the 2017 edition is no exception. Lewis Hamilton was ranked number one this year. That decision and the many others that went into creating the list have proved to be the subject of plenty of debates, I have to say criticism for the most part, on social media. I'm your host, Ed Strew, and joining me to delve into our Top 50 are the two Autosport editors. First up, Autosport.com editor Glenn Freeman. Now, even at the coalface over the past few years, as the Top 50 has really grown in the digital arena, shall we say, it's become quite a big deal each December now, hasn't it? Yeah, it seems to get bigger and bigger every year as well. It's been a staple of the magazine for quite a long time now, but over the last few years we've started to expand it a bit online as well, and 
what also helps is that more and more drivers are noticing when they're included in it now and they get quite excited about it online as well. So that generates a bit more noise and debate. And yeah, as you've, as you've already alluded to, that flags it up to all the people that can get angry about it, that uh, they can read it as well. We also have another Autosport editor, Kevin Turner, the magazine editor. Now, the top 50 made up uh, a big chunk of the Autosport Christmas double issue, which has got all sorts of stuff in it. How are you enjoying the Art Deco visual vibe of it this year? Oh, I think that's quite cool, isn't it? I think it's always difficult to know what to do with something that's as bespoke as that, and also you need to tie in with the with the website as well. Just picking up on that point, actually, I think it's, the reason it's grown so big is that social media is perfect for it, isn't it? Any kind of list uh, to get a debate going, and it's not just a top five or a top ten, a top fifty. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can dis- disagree in, in it, disagree on in it. So, um, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why it's why it's grown. Is one of those things, almost its time has come, hasn't it? Because when we first started in the top 50, way back in 2002, Twitter was obviously still still there, in the uh, not even in the minds of the creators. It was still still to come. So it's become more and more popular as, as time has gone on. And we also have one other guest, Tom Errington, making his second Autosport podcast appearance. And this is your first experience of being involved in the top 50. So as a newcomer, how did you find the whole process? I think the thing that... Uh been really surprising is just how much work goes into it we have so many people in the office covering so many different championships and this is one of those rare occasions where everyone's pulling in what they've learned from drivers supporting staff everything and saying right how do we quantify someone is better than someone else and the amount of toing and throwing we do or when someone asks for an opinion on a driver you know about where should he go in relation to a driver in a completely different championship it's one of the hardest things I've been asked to do. But at the same time, it's massively satisfying to see this list pull together and, and create the debate that we're seeing now. And it should be noted that it is a collaborative process. It's no one individual's list. And I imagine everyone involved, certainly all four of us in this room, would have had a slightly different version. And there's probably a few drivers we think should have been in or should not have been in or, or whatever. Now, Kev, let's delve into the, the methodology. Can you just outline a little bit how the top 50 works and what we're trying to achieve with it? Well, I think what we're trying to achieve is to find who have been the best performers of a particular year. Now, that sounds really obvious, but quite often people mistake it for these are the people who we think are the best drivers in the world at that moment. Which, which is would not, be a very quite, different list. Which is a different list. It's not the same thing. It's who who's delivered, you know, that in that particular year. Um, and the methodology really is is quite complex. It involves uh, a lot of people's top tens from their individual championships. So it's it's expertise and analysis from all the, uh, as Tom was just saying, all the all the contributors uh, and reporters from around the various series. Um, and then obviously you, you have to so you're ranking the drivers within those categories, and then you have to have an idea of, of, of ranking those categories. So destination championships like Formula One and NASCAR are obviously going to be higher up. Feeder series you you rank them down a bit. But if you have a particularly special performance in one of those lower championships, you then elevate it back up again. So it's a constant balancing act. And the list gets circulated around and around. Uh, you did that this year, didn't you, Ed? And people come back with, oh, I think this person should be higher and lower. And it's it's um, it's sort of a healthy debate until you say, right, this is the list. And then, uh, then it's set in stone or paper. The bit of the process I find most interesting is when people start arguing drivers down rather than up. I think everyone's got their... Not necessarily favourites, but maybe the guys they think were the real stars and they're always going to try and talk them up and they're probably always going to think that the collective view across Autosport staff isn't as high as it should be of a certain driver. But when you hear someone who's maybe got expertise in a particular field and they actually come back to you and say, oh, this person's a little bit high, I'd bring him down or he needs to be closer to that person. That's when it gets really interesting because as we know from the debate that it sparks amongst our audience, majority of people have a problem with how low a driver is that they want to see right near the top rather than quite often arguing about 
the guys ahead of them who should be below. And I know, Ed, that one of your big things in this process is always, it's all well and good saying that someone should move positions, but you, we even between ourselves, we have to argue amongst each other about why someone should be above or below someone else. And, and people have to make a really good case uh, to, to get a change affected on the list. Well, that's a difficult thing, isn't it? You've not only got to argue someone in, you've got to almost argue someone out because our starting point for this is to try and create a long list. Which is How all, long was the long list this year? The long list, it was probably about 100 names in total, which is kind of all of the people who people felt should be a top 50 or top 50 contender. And there's some very, very good drivers on that list. And they were all 51st, weren't they? That's what we tell them. The other 50 drivers that didn't make it were all joint 51st. Exactly, that's what we tell them. But there's drivers who've achieved great things. Just to throw one in, Esapekka Lapiu on Rally Finland this year hasn't made the top 50, but he's made a big splash in the in the WRC. There's a lot of drivers who've achieved an enormous amount. We're covering so much ground in terms of championships. There's thousands of drivers competing in these many series, so there's going to be a lot of people who've had good seasons who, who miss out. Well, that's one of the nice things about having, because the Motorsport News uh, list is a top 50 moments. So there you can actually give it to something like that because it's, it is a one-off event, whereas what we're trying to do with the 50 drivers, really what you're looking for is sustained quality over the year. So one standout performance isn't necessarily going to get you in there. You know, it depends where that is and what other people have done around you. I think when you individually contribute as well, you're going with your short list and be adamant this driver should be on the list. And then when you look at your long list and the drivers in there, you start to think, oh, that driver I was adamant should be in the top 50. There's 10, 12 drivers that have been argued that are actually more deserving of that inclusion. So they fall to the wayside. But you don't consider that until you've seen that long list, really. And it is obviously difficult because it's People complain sometimes that this list is subjective, but of course it is. We've never claimed there's some great metric. There's good metrics in championships for deciding who's the best. It's called it's called a championship, and these are all competing in different categories. So we have to make judgments on the relative weighting of championships, etc., the relative competitiveness of championships, not just status, because sometimes championships have stronger years and, and weaker years. So there's a lot there is a lot of subjectivity in there. We have to make those those judgment calls to try and choose between these drivers and i think that's something you can say to a lot of people that are criticizing the list on on where a driver should be is okay to start with rank all the championships that we cover and include you know okay if most people will say f1 at the top but what's the second championship we should rank so high third fourth and so on and you'll get so many different opinions on where it should be and where it shouldn't be you know world rally cross with christopherson's one i've seen a lot of people saying about you know why is he so low well in relation to other championships where does world rally cross sit this is the big question and there's also an additional complication because there's a number of drivers in there who've had success in multiple categories Christofferson is one example as well as winning World Rallycross he did about half of the Scandinavian Touring Car Championship on a pro rata basis if you look at the points he scored he'd have won that championship as well then you have people like Brendan Hartley who did F1 and they did World Endurance Championship they also won the Dubai 24 Hours you know these drivers who are in multiple areas Alex Lynn is another example who you can't really put your finger on anything Alex Lynn in one category did but the cumulative success got him into the list in in 47th place and there's various examples of this Pierre Gasly is another one so that's that extra layer of, of complication. I always like the drivers who have multiple programs. They're, they're always uh, interesting. And in fact, if you look at someone like Lucas Degrassi, he's actually dropped a chunk this year to number 24 because while he won Formula E, he no longer had an Audi WEC drive and he was very impressive in WEC last year, which it's not his fault, but he's had less opportunity to impress because his season's effectively been halved. Well, let's get a little bit down into detail and some of the objections. Now, there have been some question marks about Lewis Hamilton as number one. Now, 
I find this incredibly tedious, but various people have claimed that it's a British paste publication. Well, of course, we always put a British driver number one. Now, we've done the top 50 16 times at Autosport. It's only the third time a British driver has actually been number one, which considering there have been, I think, five British World Championships in that in that era, says that we're not just automatically putting them there. Lewis Hamilton has three times been number one, 2009, 15 and 17. And of course, 2009, he didn't even win the World Championship. So this accusation comes up a lot, not just in the top 50, but in a lot of things, this British bias. Glenn, how do you respond to that? You're right. We do get it a lot. And I think there's an assumption that because we are British based, that we must have some huge British bias or that we feel that we have to write about the Brits a lot or more than everybody else or that we put more weight behind what we write about them or that we favour them in our coverage. That's not actually the case. I don't think it's ever particularly been the case in the magazine's history. There'll be times where all sports coverage was more British based a long time ago when really people perhaps had more of an interest in how Brits were getting on further around the world and it was harder to follow. But on the website, we've learned that not only is a significant chunk of our audience not coming from the UK, but the British fans we do have as Autosport readers online don't care any more for stories about the British drivers or British teams or anything like that than they do anything else. They're fans of racing. Like Autosport readers and Autosport's audience are the most hardcore motorsport fans you can find and they are interested in just interesting stories and whoever whoever the personalities are and wherever they are from, our readers are the types of fans that will read about whatever the big stories are. So we've been able to learn that over a certain period of time and I think that's enabled us to not have to feel obliged to give a British slant on a lot of the things that we cover. I can sense Kevin Turner very, very eager to wade in. Well, no, I, yeah, no, I, was, I'm, I fundamentally agree with Glenn, but I did a, I think this is relevant to this, in 2010 for um, for the 60th, I had to do some interviews with a range of drivers about about all sport, you know, it's a commemorative thing. And one of the things that came up more often than anything else was how, irrespective of nationality, they would get the coverage if they did well. It was a meritocratic thing. It wasn't a nationalistic thing. And I think I speak for pretty much everyone in the office. Is I d- We don't really care where someone's from. We care about what they're doing, what they're delivering, what they're like as drivers, as people, whatever. So, you know, we're most of us here are massive fans of Fernando Alonso. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, nationality is kind of, it's just a bit of a red herring for me, really. I think you appreciate skill and quality, a great overtake or whatever, uh, irrespective of nationality. So it's something fine very frustrating when the accusation is levied at us it basically boils down to how good are you and how interesting are you and you put those two things yeah. together and that's going to reflect how much coverage someone gets if they're british it doesn't make a difference to us yeah and i think my experience in my, my first year working with the companies there's been sort of two flashpoints where we've had the bias claims on both sides so when baku happened the vettel hamilton clash it was are oh, you you're biased towards hamilton in the way we reported on it and then you have f1 london live where hamilton didn't turn up to that we were accused of being anti-Hamilton then, despite the fact that a lot of the people who were complaining about it carried the same sentiments that he should have been there. There's this side, there's almost this feeling that you actually can't win in the way we report on either side. There are some people who are going to look for it to be a bias of some kind when inherently there isn't one. And that's, but that's another reason to play it as absolutely, you know, straight and exactly. as objectively as you can, because you, you know, I've, we found it on the McLaren or sort of BRDC award is it is always a conspiracy theory as to why somebody's won or what somebody hasn't won, but it's just because we picked the best driver. Come and turn. I'm going to give you a yellow card for hitting the table. I'm hitting the table. Yeah. It's early in the podcast to be hitting things, isn't it? Stop it. You're going to cut that now, aren't you? you can carry on now. No, I'm done. I'm done.
everybody does have biases. We we all do. That's unavoidable, and it's all about how you try and counterbalance them. On the nationality side, I do think that there's quite a lot of motorsport fans, and I think we're among them, who one of the appeals of motor racing is it's not very much on national lines. A driver is a driver. I find nationality fairly tedious and find it often poisons a lot of debate. And I, I look forward to a, a future world where we don't have to worry quite so much about uh, about nationhood, which, of course, is a, a newer idea perhaps than people think. I don't think it's necessarily the, the way of things, but I'm getting a bit off topic there. Let's get into detail. Hamilton is number one. Now, I'm going to hark back to a previous podcast, our season review, Ben Anderson, who did our, our top 10 F1 drivers, he explained why he felt Hamilton was number one and why he shaded just Max Verstappen, who was number two in our list. There was a very strong case when I was doing my analysis to put Verstappen number one, like trying to weigh up, you know, all the different categories, qualifying speed, battle against a teammate, mistakes, races where you've overachieved or qualified higher than maybe you should have done. It was very, very close in nearly all all measures really between Hamilton and Verstappen. The thing that that swung it in the end for Lewis over Max, apart from winning the championship, I just feel that Lewis progressed through the year. We touched earlier on his you know, weaker points and um, you know being behind Bottas when the car wasn't strong. By the second half of the year, he turned that around and he had Bottas in his pocket completely. Max, the, the still the one thing that if you're going to say he has a weakness is that in wheel to wheel he's very high risk always very high risk and really asks all of his rivals to jump out of his way or risk a crash and we saw that many times he was lucky not to get a puncture at the start in Canada that's very Senna-esque isn't it it's, it's Senna-esque but the the point is that he he did cost him he did cost the team a result in Hungary smashing into Ricardo. he cost himself a result in Spain going three wide into turn one He's always on the absolute limit. And I didn't see any progression in that. You know, Red Bull have said that, you know, maybe he needs to look at that. Marco said last year he needs to be more patient. I haven't seen him develop that quality yet. And it's the only thing. I think in a title fight, that could cost him. At the moment, it's fine because he has got nothing to lose. Red Bull aren't in the in the mix. If he can't develop this temperament of his... what usually our excellent racing instincts, then that could cost him when things are really on the line. So for me, that's the one thing that, that drops him back behind Lewis in the rankings. Well, listening to that, you can't really dispute that Ben has uh, put some thought into this. And I know from, we were talking about the long list earlier. I think there were quite a few times during the process where we were narrowing this list down that actually we didn't have a number one and a two. We had Verstappen and Hamilton at the top. And we knew that at some point, once we were down to our sort of 55 or something like that, we were then going to have to go back to the top of the list and go, how do you split these two? And Ben's reasoning there, I think, is absolutely fine. And I I don't really, I don't dispute that. And I think a compelling case could be made for Verstappen as well. Um, But, you know... I wouldn't have liked to see us put equal number ones. I always think that's a cop-out. That is a, Unless you've got a really clear reason, that's not acceptable. I think there's another point that works in Hamilton's favour that Ben didn't make there because I'd have been tempted to put Alonso maybe into that mix as well on the basis of, okay, so his F1 results are worse because of the McLaren, but he did have the Indy 500 result. But he has the same problem that Verstappen has compared to Hamilton, which they were not involved in a title fight. And I think that brings a different pressure. And we saw what pressure can do in that circumstances with with Vettel, which answers the question to people, why is he down at is it five? Number four. Number four. Behind that, Fernando Alonso. Uh, yeah, behind Alonso. And uh, because when you know push came to shove in the championship fight, he was the one that cracked and Lewis didn't. I think that's a pressure that's uh, there's not many people in any given season who uh, that's applied to and Alonso and, and, and Verstappen didn't have that. 
Vettel and Hamilton did. Hamilton stood up to it and Vettel didn't. So I think that kind of helps give you the order. It, it's that fine margins you mentioned. And a, and a great example of how different your outlook and approach can be is, is Malaysia when Verstappen makes his pass on Hamilton. Hamilton backs out of that because he knows there's a bigger picture there. Earlier on in his career, we wouldn't have seen that. There would have been a response. And there's the pressure of the title race and knowing when to do exactly the right thing. And, and Mexico, that amazing start by uh, Verstappen, he can afford to make that. He's not in the battle that Hamilton and Vettel are in. And we know all the talent is there, but at the same time, Hamilton's had a different type of title race to battle this year. He's had opposition from outside his own team. And where Rosberg, you know, mentally had the better of him for a while, Hamilton didn't show any cracks at all. There was that rate of improvement again, even though he's achieved so much. And I think that edges him ahead of Max. But same time, if Max is here at this rate in his career, there's going to be plenty of number ones to come if he carries on. Well, he's not British, though, so he can't be number one. Yeah, sorry, plenty <laughs> of number twos to come. I think the key thing with Lewis is that he wouldn't have got this number one without the run he went on after the F1 summer break. You know, he he found a level that I don't think we've necessarily ever seen from him before as a Formula One driver. And that was, as you guys say, when the pressure ramped up, he dug deep and he found something else. And he went on this relentless run of form that enabled him to capitalise so much on the sort of implosion that was going on in the Vettel Ferrari camp, whether that was in Vettel's mind or on the track or underneath the skin of the Ferrari when it kept suffering failures. It was Lewis that maybe created those circumstances that put Ferrari under so much pressure. And that was that was an incredible spell after the summer break where he, he really, it, it's performances like he was capable of then that are what makes you the number one driver in a list like this. I think that's important to factor in. The vast majority of drivers in this list, well, all of them really have been very successful in one way, shape or form. If you're struggling with poor machinery, it can be harder to make a, make an impression. And sometimes one-off showings can almost get weighted too much in terms of the, the interest. So we try and balance up the the circumstances, should we say, for, for all drivers. And I think people desperately underestimate sometimes how difficult it is in a, in a title fight, particularly in the really high-profile championships with your every move being scrutinised. And you almost saw with Sebastian Vettel how a few times he, he seemed to wilt a bit under that pressure just how easy it is for very formidable drivers to to struggle. One question we have had from a few people, uh, I've been looking at some of the social media responses, there's a, there's a tweet from Jake Powell saying Sebastian Ogier should have been number one after four titles in a row with a manufacturer team to jump into M Sport and show us again how good he is no matter what machine he's driving, makes him my number one. Now, we have had a, a WRC number one before, Sebastian Loeb was number one in, in 2005, the rest of the time they have been F1 drivers, but this is the the question of the top level of rallying versus the top level of of F one. What do you reckon, Kev? I think um, I mean I'm an OJ fan, so I can see where that's coming from. But ultimately, he won two rallies, and his teammate Octana actually set more uh, fastest stage times than him. Yeah, it was a very and that's why Tanax twelve. Yeah, so it was a very clever sort of cunning campaign, but he didn't. It was kind of points accumulation. Um, and it was a fantastic storyline for, for what, the World Rally Championship for Volkswagen can, to, to go away. And it opened it up and Hyundai probably had the quickest car. And OJ kind of made the difference. But I don't think it was an outstanding performance in the way that we saw with Hamilton in Formula 1. And certainly in the second half years, as, as Glenn was just saying. So I think um, it, was, it was a very, very good season. But uh, I think there were enough caveats there to just pull him back a little bit away from the top, you know, the top three or four guys. It's a, an extremely talented field, but if you look uh, across the entire season, you've had people like Tanak, Lappi, Mickelson, Neville. They've all had 
bright showings here and there where they've shown that you know, this is a high quality field, but who actually put a sustained challenge to Ogier? Neville came closest, but there were far too many costly errors there that meant Ogier could be in a position to manage the rest of his season as he did successfully. And, and that warrants a high place in the inclusion. But I think, you know, you ha- as we were saying with Hamilton, there has to be that that real title battle or a sustained challenge that shows a driver is that another level above his competitors. And in some respects, dominance can go against it a little bit there. You know, the Volkswagen dominance, you know, people might say that Ogier should be lowered down because he has a great car. And I agree that jumping into a privateer and, and making such a great job of it shows his talent. But there are so many factors at play there that, that make it really impossible to put him any higher than he really is in the ratings. And he's the top non-F1 driver anyway. I mean, it's very hard to argue there are many bigger stars in world motorsport than Hamilton, Verstappen, Alonso and Vettel. You know, it's a phenomenal list and he's he's the next best, which is a great achievement and is a nod to what he has achieved and how that reflects in comparison to all the other championships around the world. I've always had a little bit of sympathy for Ogier because he didn't quite get the chance to properly take away the rallying crown from Sebastian Loeb. You know, if we'd had a rivalry between those two, more people would appreciate how good Ogier is and we'd have been treated to a fantastic little spell of, of rallying. Instead, he sort of he just picked up the mantle when when Loeb left. So we've just had endless run of French Sebastians winning rally championships for as long as any of us can remember. And that's not his fault. He's a fantastic driver. And I hope that if the WRC keeps getting stronger and he faces a bigger challenge, from whether it's from manufacturer teams or more drivers coming in or more depth in the field, that'll make more people realise what what a what a star driver he is. However, I don't have a problem with him being fifth in the list. Also, it's worth noting that Ajay, he's the only driver who's been an ever present in the top five since 2013. He's gone second, fifth, third, fourth, fifth. So he's been right up there. And there's every chance Ajay could do it. I personally quite like the idea of a non-F1 driver being number one. I think when Loeb was number one back in 2005, I think uh, I was overseeing that that list then as well. And there's part of me that likes that idea, but at the same time, you can't just do it for the sake of it. You've got to do it for the for the right reasons. And everyone will have a different argument for who should be number one. But Ojay's got a chance, and again next year, I think you know this year maybe if he'd won a few more rallies and if Noville hadn't thrown away so many points, perhaps he could have made a, a, a stronger a stronger argument. Now, one thing I do want to add is that the drivers take some interest in this, and and so let's let's just hear from Daniel Ricciardo. We interviewed him about the top fifty. He's been twice number one in twenty fourteen and twenty sixteen. About the top fifty. This is before he knew exactly where he'd be this year, but uh, we quite like it because it does show that uh, a few of the drivers do do care about their position. We always say we don't read uh, read much media, but when there's something positive, we kind of read it because <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the top 50 is a bit of a fun thing, I guess, at the end of every year. Everyone kind of looks out for it, so when, you're, uh, when you are voted first, it's, it look, it's a little pat on the back. Um, it's nice to, I guess, be recognised through, I guess, more than one person's eyes. Um, but I think, I feel the best part about it is through my eyes, I was number one as well, so we were on the same page. <laughs> I've been, yeah, 2014, 2016, I got voted number one, so it's nice to have it more than once. I guess I wasn't a a one-hit wonder through uh, people's eyes. Also, part of me is a bit sometimes frustrated with that because I'm like, well, maybe I was the best that year, but I don't have a title to show for it, so I'll keep digging. (laughs) Firstly, it's nice to know I'm I'm in the top ten. That's great. Uh, I don't think I'll be number one this year. Um, In my eyes... I think I had some 
some drives were number one worthy, but uh, probably not enough of them. You know, if I look back at last year, so uh, who who deserves it this year? I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, it's nice to still be there. I, I feel, you know, we had highs lows for sure. Some highs were in Baku, amazing race. It was fun, but even little but little parts like Monaco when Max and Valtteri pitted and I had a chance to overcut them. I put in some, some kind of qualifying laps. That was cool. That earned me the podium. Uh, so there was a few races like that, which, uh, which certainly stood out. So, you know, a few lows, more reliability point of view. Um, Max found his tire inside my side pod, but hey, it's all right. <laughs> Top three across motorsport. Actually, I'm going to go left of field here. NASCAR, Martin Truex Jr. He had a huge season. Uh, won the title, and uh, yeah, that was, from all accounts, a, a massive year. So I think he's worthy of uh, top three. Um, I wonder if a NASCAR driver's ever been first. So interesting. We'll see. We'll see where my prediction ends up. It's obvious, but I'll have to say Lewis, um, because I don't think he always had the best car this year, but he still found a way to win the title quite comfortably. Uh, I think Seb had as good a car and could have ended up where Lewis did, but uh, I kind of felt like Lewis kept you know, his cool a bit better this year. So, and I'm not just referring to Baku, but in general, even when Valtteri got the better of Lewis you know, on the few occasions, I think Lewis still bounced back really well. So he, he, he was up there. Um, who else? I mean, my teammate Max, Max had a very solid year. Uh, I think he progressed from last year, so he also had a, a great year. Now, Daniel Ricciardo leads us on to our, our next question, which is, is there too much F1 in the list? There's 50 drivers, 15 of them Formula One drivers, albeit with a caveat that Brendan Hartley and Pierre Gasly got in there as much, if not more so, for their exploits outside of Formula One with the, the Toro Rosso outings, just a little bit of an extra cherry on the top. Tom, what do you reckon to that? 15 out of 50 F1 drivers. Well, I think if you're going to consider F1 the top tier of motorsport, as we do, the drivers in there, are the best in the world. If you think about the top three teams in F1 alone, that's six drivers already. When you think of the standard, they all are as well. When you've got young talents such as Ocon coming through at Force India and people like that, that number only grows, really. So I think some people probably argue you could put nearly the entire field in there. We don't. And I think we, for all we recognise F1 as a top, as you said before, you know, we have had rally drivers at the top. We've got Ogier in fifth. We've got people like Leclerc down in tenth. You know, we're not saying F1 is the be-all and end-all, but if you are an F1 competitive at the top, naturally there is, you've got a hell of a lot of ability. And if we look at it, I mean, we've got, what, uh, 15 out of the 50 are F1 drivers, but am I right in thinking only five of the top 10? So we're not weighting it completely in favour of F1, and we're not saying, right, 15 F1 drivers are in there, they will occupy the top 15 places. They're, they are, they're, they're spread around. And I think, if, if anything, I believe that we've actually got better at how we spread around the F1 drivers that we do include rather than thinking that they should be all much closer to the front of the list just because they're F1 drivers. We had a little bit of criticism about Kimi Raikkonen. He's down in in 46th place. There's one criticism tweet. that he's in or...? Well, it depends. There's one tweet here he saying, uh, saying Allsport does not like Kimi Raikkonen or what? Ranked him number 46 in the top 50. Now, actually, Ben Anderson was, uh, was questioning why he was in the top 50 at all. But I can see that. The counter-argument is he was the Monaco Grand Prix poll winner he might have won a Grand Prix had things panned out differently and he did finish fourth in the World Championship. So I would say 46. I, I can't really see an argument for having him much higher. Kev? 
Well, yeah, this is a this is a subject I've talked quite a lot about. Um, it's not a matter of not liking Kimi Raikkonen; it's a frustration that he doesn't deliver the performance that we all know, or at least we think, if we can think back far enough, um, that he can deliver. You know, he's had a he's been you know pasted at Ferrari by first Alonso and then Vettel, um, and when you've got so few competitive cars at the front of F1, you know, we've had four, sometimes six this year. You want them all to be driven by people that can be competing for race wins and he's very good at being third fourth or fifth I think he's fortunate to have been fourth in the drivers championship had Ricardo not retired at the last round uh, Ricardo would have been fourth um, and I think that there are a lot of um, a lot of drivers who if they performed at that level in their various seats wouldn't be there now and that's that's the frustration you know Vettel puts a championship battle you know fight together and Raikkonen didn't win a race the one thing I would say in Kimmy's defence this year is that he did look more convincing at times this year. You know, he did play rear gunner a couple of times. Hungary, I think, in particular. You know, he did a good job. So it's kind of getting closer to what a Ferrari number two. Um, yeah, but there are too many races where he's 20, 30 seconds behind Vettel and that's just not really good enough, I think, if you're in one of the top three teams in Formula 1. I think it's also unacceptable that we're sat here talking about a veteran of however many hundreds of starts now in Kimi Raikkonen and we're saying that he's getting somewhere towards being a decent number two and that's not what Kimi Raikkonen should be about that's not what he was about during his sort of early McLaren years when he was this fantastic talent that arrived on the scene and stunned everyone at times and was spectacular to watch now we've got this guy who keeps getting these one-year contract extensions and we're not actually we're not against him we're looking for reasons to try and suggest that he deserves these contract extensions. We're trying to pick out the positives. It's just that, as Kev uh, made very clear there, there aren't that many. Um, and I think, yeah, I can see why someone would say he shouldn't be in there at all. And if he is going to be in there, he should be down where he is. Yeah, and in fact, Kimi Räikkönen wasn't even in the top 50 last year. So it's it's a, a step forward. He's on the up. Exactly, exactly. Let's have a look at some of the other things. Tom Errington, there's sometimes complaints there's not enough US-based drivers. How do you think we've done in terms of balancing up the the kind of European heartland that's traditionally been, I guess, more of autosports focus with its geographical location with the the competitors in IndyCar, IMSA, NASCAR? I think, um, first of all, it's IndyCar and NASCAR, I have to take it. It's a bit common to get, you know, a driver from each in the top 10, and that's truly reflective of their seasons. You know, Newgarden joins um, IndyCar's top team after two years of being the best non-Penske driver, really. Plenty of talk at the start. Was he going to do a, a Pagano, struggle in his first year and then switch it on in the second year? But, you know, we're a car that he, he's, he said to me that he didn't particularly like the car when he got it. And yet there he is getting podiums and race wins. Has a dreadful month in May um, with Indianapolis. Falls far and far behind. And then he goes on this run where he's on a podium in virtually every race afterwards. Um, it, it's a fantastic season in every measure. Um, then in the NASCAR front with Truex, NASCAR is doing all sorts of changes to try and keep itself still relevant for the audience and that this time around has meant completely ripping up how NASCAR races are done with this stage format. So you've gone from being a championship where really you're awarded for being good right at the end to now you've got to be good across 500, 600 laps, which is a huge change in direction. And Martin Truex Jr., okay, forget that the Toyota's the best car. He instantly hit the strategy spot on, won more stages than anyone else. Carl Busch, we all know how good he is. Second best to that. Couldn't quite keep with um, Truex, apart from a little bit of a run in the playoffs. So, you know, it's fair that he's quite a way down from him. We should expect more from Carl Busch as well. So we've got Newgarden 6th, Truex 8th, Carl Busch 29th. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, outside of that, 
there's a lot of IndyCar drivers where you would say in certain spells had great seasons. You know, Takuma Sato winning the Indy 500 was fantastic achievement, well earned. You know, some of that recklessness we tend to associate with him was gone that day. But then in other races, that recklessness is back and the needless mistakes. Willpower, okay, he had a very difficult year last year for lots of off-track reasons. You know, he's had a good year this year, but we know he can do better when you see what someone like a New Garden's doing. So there's lots of drivers there that, you know, perhaps they were on the periphery of the top 50, but hadn't done quite enough to earn that. But I know from social media criticism, we've had quite a bit of criticism for how we've weighted uh, IMSA Sports Car Championship. I think in some Which is funny, actually, because IMSA's done better this year than in some years. Both Dane Cameron and Ricky Taylor are in there. Yeah, and, you know, I think, as we were saying before, it's not quite the feeder categories, but, you know, the top tiers are where there should be more weighting behind that. So, okay, our drivers included from IMSA are DPI drivers and you know i've seen people saying christina nielsen in gtd should be considered but the issue there is if you start considering gt drivers at that level you're then looking at the various gt3 gt4 championships around the world and you end up with a the shortlist could have grown from you know sorry the longlist could have grown from 110 to 250 names overnight if we started doing that so that's a little bit harder um the gtlm i see i've seen a lot of drivers there saying you know alexander sims or antonio garcia should be in there it's a little bit of a victim of itself in that GTLM is such a strong field and it was so competitive that no one truly stood out. And at the same time, it's it's very hard to evaluate GT drivers too because there are two, three, four drivers sharing a car. You know, someone who's leading at the front might well be because they've got four drivers of similar pace. A car that's in second could be because they've got one good driver. So that is an area that is really difficult to, to go for. And I think we've reflected uh, IMSA very fairly. I think you could maybe make a case for... Um, Rengi van der Zard, perhaps purely for that pass at the corkscrew, if nothing else. But at the same time, he had a very good season that's earned him the seat that Cameron had. You know, we, we've got one of the Taylor brothers in there, but they split their season where one did qualifying, one did the race, and they combined to win five races. So for including one, perhaps the other should have got in there as well. But, but I do think that actually we've given him sir, a, a correct weighting. I think you also come up with the problem of, well, which is the premier American motorsport category like in you in european base we okay you get a few people that argue against it but we know that it's formula one but is it indycar is it nascar it's probably nascar in terms of a lot that's where most of the homegrown talent has gone joseph newgarn's actually a bit of an exception to that but did come to europe to get you know to get his road racing skills honed or whatever and then went back so and you also you know we've seen over the last you know 10 20 longer years that when European-based drivers or South American-based drivers have gone into those American championships, they tend to do very well. So it's very difficult to gauge the level of those American categories. I suspect we will have more IMSA drivers next year because that is going to, with, with Penske and Yost, you know, Yost going in there, the level of professionalism of the team and I suspect of the drives is going to go up and then we'll see which names are still standing this time next year. I think that'll be one of the most interesting things about the 2018 list, actually. It, it might not be for 2018 in, in NASCAR's case as well, but a lot of, of older drivers have exited the championship and a lot of young talents coming through. I don't expect them to hit the ground running next year, particularly and be winning races and championships, but people like Ryan Blaney, who you know we've seen what he's capable of. 2019, 2020, we might be seeing a resurgence in NASCAR drivers there, and that's going to be another interesting time for the top 50 list, as well as IndyCar, you know, particularly internationally. It's growing, you know, a lot, and it's not just because Van der Waals did the Indy 500. It's that it's grown strongly after it reunited. We've been looking at uh, Mexico races and that sort of thing as well. So, actually, you know, and particularly with IMSA growing as well, it could be the next couple of years we're going to have quite a, a bit of a headache with American racing because the quality is going up. Well, it's interesting. There's always the shifting sands of the championships. Obviously, you go back years at the top 50, and American Le Mans series drivers were 
always doing very well. And that had the unification a few years ago, and it's taken a little bit of time for him to, to, to build up. NASCAR changes. We've had NASCAR drivers. Jimmy Johnson's been third three times in the top 50, so that's gone up and down. NASCAR, I think as you alluded to, because of the format, can be tricky to evaluate sometimes. That's made it a, a much more much more difficult one to call. And obviously, WRC, I think we've had more WRC drivers in this year than in, in the past few years, which reflects how that championship is on the up. And then you have categories like DTM, where it's quite quite flexible in terms of where people end up. Rene Rast, the, the DTM champion, uh, is in this year. It was his, um, it was his first full season. 17th overall but Marco Wittmann a few years ago was fourth when he when he won it so his only appearance as well am I right that Wittmann's only been in it once I think Wittmann got in again in 16 but ah, he was okay. I think the stat you're thinking of is he was for a while the highest one hit wonder That's should we it, say in, yeah. the, in the top 50 I've got this vast spreadsheet with 800 names in it of the uh, of, of the history which uh, eventually Go on, then start on. reading them out number one <laughs> 2002. The, the fun thing is to go through it and see who the worst driver that's turned up in it is. I, I won't say who uh, who turned up in our discussions, but there's, there's some interesting names in it. It's actually, uh, for, for me, it's quite interesting because 2002, the first year we did this, was my first year with Autosport. So it, actually looking at this this vast spreadsheet of all the names it just shows how much everything's changed kind of in, in my professional career, just from a personal level. It's, it's interesting to, to be confronted with that and some of, the, some of the names that have turned up in there and have long since retired or long since gone into a kind of uh, steady decline, shall we say. It's uh, it's interesting. Now, another question we've had. Charles Leclerc, F2 champion, 10th this year. We've had some people arguing, we even have one person on social media arguing he should be number one. And we've had some people arguing that the F2 champion should be lower. Glenn, what do you make of Leclerc's position? I think 10th's pretty good. Um, I'm a massive fan of him, but even I wouldn't say that he should have been number one. Um, did a fantastic job, you know, F2 or GP2 rookie champions are few and far between. That's for a very good reason that it's incredibly difficult when you're at that level and that close to F1, particularly since they've had tricky Pirelli tyres to work with since 2011 as well. It's incredibly difficult to do what he did. Yes, he had the best car, but he also made the best use of it. There's plenty of people in this list who are the highest representative from their series who arguably had the best car, but it's what you do with it. And I think he is in he's in a fair position. I I always think back to twenty fifteen when Stoffel Van Dorn was fifth as the GP two champion as a second year driver. And I can see why some people may consider that to be the benchmark. And you could say, well, this time we've got Leclerc who's done it as a rookie champion, so should he be at least as high as Van Dorn or higher than? But that brings me to one of my favourite points about the top fifty, that there is no particular achievement that guarantees you uh, getting over a certain threshold. So it could be that, for whatever reason, there was something about Van Dorn's season that was so special. Or it could just be that some of the other drivers in other categories, maybe there weren't people who excelled in the same way in that year. It, it can be reflective of what the other leading drivers around the world were doing, not necessarily just what the individual person whose position we're kind of dissecting here, uh, what they achieved. Yeah, it's all about context, isn't it? Isn't right. Well, the F two champion slot. So you have got your top fifteen F one drivers and your F two driver slots in at sixteen. Or just, exactly. It's got to be about. It's got to be about content. And that's that's the interesting thing for me. That's the that's one. If of it was the, formulaic, uh, people it wouldn't be interesting no. every year. And that for me is one of the most exciting things about our job is we want to look past the championship championship table. Now it's made the point earlier on about that being the maybe the objective uh, index, but it, but I think it's a championship is always flawed. The point system will never give you 
you should never do a top 10 driver listing that's basically the same as the championship. You used to have a very strong case because you're always factoring in circumstances, experience, the machinery they've got, how they've compared to their teammate, all that kind of stuff. And you feed that in across different series. And that's why well, that's why it's so fascinating and why we have such a good debate about the top 50. And on the subject to Leclerc, the big difficulty we have here is there are a number of championships that are top level professional championships you might call them but we also have feeder categories so we've got f2 drivers in there we've got gp3 in there we've got f3 european championship in there and on the one hand you could say well by definition if you're in a feeder series you're on your way up it should be ignored but you also have to factor in that drivers making a splash at that level are are relevant they they make an impact globally and then you have to kind of wait how big an impact's been made by those drivers and, and it can be it can be difficult to do to work out how to how to fit those drivers in because you don't want to just just throw them out well glenn touched on that with van dunry how high we rated him but look at the year he's had in in formula one that you know it has been a huge struggle until sort of mid-season he even made the top 50 this year oh yeah see you know it, it took a mid-season switch for him to get there and i remember sort of around the summer break time where eric Boulier was saying that his junior single-seater experience had actually hampered him a bit in, in formula one so, you know, if, if there's that feeling as well, how does that weigh it up there? We know Van Dorn's talent, and he showed it at the end of the year, but that alone shows the difference in stepping up from a dominant F2 season to an F1 car. Well, and that's the argument for having F1, that, the, the pinnacle, that is the point. That's why you've got the F1 drivers. I mean, the other one's Lance Stroll. You know, he was in the top 50 last year, but he's had a, you know, we talk about Van Dorn having a difficult season in F1, but he did have one of the best drivers in the world, our, our third in our list as his teammate, and a car that broke down a lot, which is the opposite to what you need when you need seat time when you're a rookie. And he did get it together in the second half of the year. Lance Stroll, you'd say, probably had a lower benchmark in Felipe Massa, or I think Massa did. Massa obviously liked these bigger, wider, beefier cars more than he liked the previous ones, so his performance probably did improve a little bit. But Stroll was a long way off him and, and remained quite a long way off him as well. So... He's, uh, he's fallen out of the top 50 completely. It shows the challenge that even the successful feeder guys have got stepping up, especially with these new cars. For a little bit of a spoiler alert, I think Leclerc's going to have to do something pretty special in a Sauber next year in F1 to remain in the top 10, isn't he? No, exactly. It's it's a challenge. I mean, it can be done. Funnily enough, Pascal Verline missed out in the top 50 this year, although he was in it last year for his exploits in the in the manor. So, it, again, sometimes that's just down to the, the fluctuations of, of year to year. For example... WRC's been stronger this year, so there's more rally drivers in there, so straight away it's it's a bit harder to to get your way. And the other the other factor is not only have you got the the kind of the destination championships and the and the feeder categories, you've also got national versus international. And we have got a few national series in there. Ash Sutton, the BTCC champion, is in there in forty third. Jamie Wincup, the Australian Supercars champion, is is thirty fifth. And these are almost these kind of hermetically sealed national series that are in there. And yet also we don't have the World Touring Car champion. Ted Bjork in there and in fact had Norbert Michaelis as it looked like he might do come through to nick the championship guitar actually Michaelis probably would have sneaked into the into the top 50 which which says something so it, on paper you should say well of course the world touring car championship eclipses the BTCC champion or the Australian champion but it's not that simple ever is it but well that's the context Ian, again isn't it we know that um you know the rich touring car championship is a destination championship within this country and has full grids and close racing and Ash Sutton in that, within that context also had a very very strong season, very impressive. Um, Australian Australian supercars is uh, has been like that for even longer. Arguably, it's probably been consistently strong for longer. So to win that, you you know that is absolutely sort of top notch, really. And then world touring cars, the fact that they've had to bend the rules 
spin the regulations and come up with a, a deal with TCL for the next two years indicates the, the sort of position it had got to. So it had fallen behind British touring cars and Australian supercars. I think perhaps a, another debate for a podcast is does a touring car category work as on an international level or should it be just a national a national thing? Um We'll perhaps do that another time, Ed. But yeah, uh, you'll just use it as an excuse to but, hit the table even more. Yeah, sorry. Um, so yeah, so the um, yeah, I think it's absolutely fair that those those two in world touring cars aren't represented this year. Another question we have mentioned him earlier, but there's a tweet here from Ian Reynolds. Biggest travesty is the dominant world rallycross champion Johan Christofferson down in forty first. His record in an FIA championship is without comparison. Has to be top twenty easily. Kev, um, <laughs> I. On my personal list, I wouldn't mind pushing off a little bit higher. If you factor in, you know, factor in that you know, World Rallycross is on an upward trajectory, and he was, as you said earlier, good in the Scandinavian Touring Car Championship. On the other hand, I think it's quite clear that Volkswagen have completely moved the benchmark in terms of machinery there. So he had to beat, you know, basically one guy, which was Peter Solberg. <laughs> so it was a it was a pretty pretty difficult rival to beat. But I think you know you factor in factor in the machinery and, and clearly Volkswagen have, have moved things along with that car in a response to where Audi had got last year. So and that's the context thing again. Yes, it was a very very impressive season. Um but was it was it more impressive than some of the perhaps more competitive championships? Since we've had Rallycross as a world championship again, it's always been a a big point of debate. Firstly, does the champion get in? And if so, how high up the list? I think I'm right in thinking Ed Solberg was in the top 50 in the first year of the World Championship, didn't get in when he won it again. And then the year after that, Ekstrom won it and was in. But obviously, Ekstrom combined that with a very competitive DTM campaign where he was arguably, he was a front runner, a race winner in, this, in the series that year. So in a way, that his DTM performances in what is an incredibly high-profile championship, however one that doesn't have an FIA World Championship status, that that drags you up. It's not just about does a championship have an FIA stamp. It's it's how strong is it, how much depth is there, what's their opposition like. And that's why, it, as Kev says, if, if World Rallycross continues to go on the up, if the field continues to get stronger, if the competition between the teams and the manufacturers continues to improve, then there's every chance that not only will the champion kind of gradually move up the list because it will become a greater achievement to win it, but we might see some of his challengers and other guys getting in towards the bottom as well. And that's the great thing about what a movable feast the the top 50 is. There's there's no formula for, for anyone or any series. And Christofferson, certainly, I'm the only one who will have probably seen every single version of this list because it, it rolls for months and people are always being moved up and down right to the last minute, actually. And Christofferson certainly did did fluctuate. He, he was at at some stages higher up as various drivers were but this this is what kind of happens it gradually gets argued down certainly you know if, if he was 10 places higher you wouldn't look at it and say that's outrageous but th- that sort of tells you how how difficult this is and there's loads of different interpretations you can take to it does anyone have any drivers that they question in that list individually when they look at or a driver that someone wants to start kevin turner style hitting the table about them not being in there well, the trick is finding someone that you'd lose, isn't it? This is what we were talking about earlier. So, so not only have you got to come up with a name to put in, you've got to decide who you knock out. And well, we I'll, I'll, let, I'll let, go with number 50. I'll let you come up with a name to put in, if you like, on its own. While Kev's thinking about that, I think the difficult thing, actually, for us is, having been involved in this process from the start, You, by the time you look at this final list, you've, you've kind of been through all the arguments for and against everybody. And I'm I'm normally quite satisfied by the end of the list that we've got. So aside from Jacques Villeneuve not being in there, I don't have a huge problem with any of it. 
Have you have you thought? Uh, Kev? Are there are a couple of names that immediately come to mind. Simon Pagano, um didn't make it in, did he? And he was quite high up last year, I think. Um, and it wasn't a terrible season that he had, but again, the, you, we've been through the debate. He was, I think he was floating around possibly in there. I know at one stage we had, um, you know, Dan ticked him in there. There was quite a big debate about that. Obviously, you know, turned up and won the Macau Grand Prix in pretty dramatic circumstances. Obviously, then won, you know, the McLaren Sport BRDC award. So you could say, well, it would be in our best interest to put him in there. But that, well, actually, he spent most of his season in Formula around a Euro Cup, finished seventh. This is the point it's, you made earlier, though, that occasional high points whether it yeah. is something as spectacular as winning the uh, Macau Grand Prix or in the case of Sato as you mentioned earlier winning the Indy 500 that's not enough because that's not what this list is about and it's not necessarily a reflection on Tickton's talent which through his achievements at the end of the year and through the McLaren Autosport BRDC award we know how good he is and how good he could be in the future but that's not what this list is about is it this is the achievements over the course of the whole year. Yeah, it's not talent rating. It's a, it's an a, achievement over the year rating, and that's the that's the thing we can't stress enough. I'd say, from my perspective, I, I'd have probably had Tixman if it's my own list. He ticks the boxes for me of achieving across multiple categories. Was quick in GP three and got the McAwen. I'm not furious that he's not in there, but that just indicates sort of the the small little differences in emphasis that that everybody would have. Anything grabbing you, Tom? I think I would have. Again, this comes down to the context point of how do you, you rate individual seasons. I wouldn't have been against putting Andreas Mikkelsen in there. I think to go from the beginning of the year where he didn't look like he even had a future in it, jumped in a WRC2 car and was very, very good. He gets that late reprieve in the World Rally Championship. He's driven multiple cars and been right at the front end and showed that the promise that we always knew was there, sort of towards 2016 we saw it. It really is there. But you know, now he'll have a full season next year. That could easily be someone who finds himself comfortably in the top 50 that's what I was going to say. Actually, this is throwing beautifully to the 2018 list because I'd be already. I'd put I'd put a, I'd put a reasonable amount of money on Tickton being in it next year. And uh, are and you allowed think, to bet on it, given that you're involved? Well, in no, creation. it's a metaphorical sort of ah. money. I wouldn't actually um, wouldn't actually put put money on. Yeah, that would be. I think that would probably conflict of interest might come into it there, wouldn't it? But I see Kev but, putting a load of money down on. Yeah, I'll be following. <laughs> yeah, put him in. Um, and I think Mickelson. Yeah, we'll find out, won't we? You know, Neuville was arguably the fastest driver. Now he's going to be in the same car as him. Apparently they get on great and they're great mates. And they're all very happy at the moment. But if they've got the car next year and they're exchanging tents on stages, then we'll yeah, then we'll find out, won't we? The thing that was quite frustrating about this year's list was actually the fault of Porsche with their approach in WAC. Because I felt it became quite difficult to evaluate the performance of the six P1 drivers because they imposed team orders so early. So you had Yarni Lotterer and Tandy in the second car that was basically after Le Mans condemned to be, to be the also runner of, of the Porsches. And in fact, I felt that also harmed the drivers in the other car. So Timo Bernhard, he's in there. Brendan Hartley's in there. El Bamba missed out. And I almost feel like they've all of six of those drivers have been reduced by what Porsche did. Uh, uh, first of all, thank you very much for talking about Nick Tandy and not leaving me to put him forward. Um, but yeah, Your favourite because, driver. Yeah. He's, he, <laughs> no, occupies posi- he occupies um, positions 1 through 50. But, yeah. <laughs> but, we could, but in fairness, you couldn't, I didn't even try and make a case for him because, he as you say, because, because LMP1 was so difficult. You know, For a while, Porsche had a significant advantage over Toyota. So you think, well, whenever you've got a team that's dominating any championship, you want them to let the cars race. And from the moment that the, the, that the other car, <laughs> the Tandy car, broke down at Le Mans and the other one came charging through to win just to beat the LMP2, from that moment, I think their, their fate was sealed because they needed to catch up in the championship, make sure Toyota didn't win it. 
Um, Porsche then said they were withdrawing, so they were protecting that car the whole time. And twice as decided they wanted to win more races. So it was it was topsy turvy, and there wasn't really a fair fight between any of those crews. You know, after after Le Mans, I don't think. Which is difficult because all six of those drivers are high caliber drivers, and, and we talked earlier about the pressure of competition. Well, straight away the competition was diminished because one crew of drivers knew they weren't really allowed to win. The other crew knew they'd be helped to win. So everybody loses out of that, including the fans who want to see a good motor race. And beyond Porsche's fault as well, it makes it very difficult to judge Toyota because they're effectively in a class of their own racing. And, you know, next year we might even have the same problem again where we're going to have Toyota having its, you know, artificially pulled back to have hybrids and stuff like that. How do we compare their performance, for example? Well, we've just got to hope that, first of all, Toyota let their cars race which I would have thought there's not a big chance they're going to get beaten by anyone else with all due respect to the privateer entries. I don't think they're going to be able to balance them enough to really stop so to win the championship. So hopefully they'll at the very least let the two cars you know, go at it. Um, so we'll have a, you know, we'll have a you know, two-car fight. It's a great example of how the sort of shifting sands amongst the series will influence our top 50 because when we had three manufacturers going full at it in the work, you know, really a peak for the series in its in its latest incarnation, I'm sure we had far more LMP1 drivers were getting in as a result. Next year, you know, even if we do have six Toyota drivers that go hell for lever at it all season, it's going to be very difficult for them all to get in unless they're achieving in other championships as well because when it comes down to it, part of the argument will be, well, who else were you beating? And that makes it more difficult for us to judge their performances. And it also potentially means that the WEC representation in the top 50 could go down if the series starts to struggle. Yeah, I can definitely see that that happening next year. And it's, it can be difficult, WEC, because there's a lot of high-quality LMP2 drivers there. Bruno Senna's the the one who, who made the list and, and ended up in, in 28th place. But... Well, and GTE. Yeah, you know, well, same yeah. same problem with the GTLM argument in IMSA. You know, you've got very high level pros in those cars, and it's so difficult for them to stand out. And of course, they're not in front; they're not obvious and in front of the cameras, if you like, in the same way, winning the races outright. So you can have the most amazing season, but to stand out is really, really difficult. It's an amusing quirk, actually, that that this year, Nicky Team, the Aston Martin driver, made the top fifty, which he did in twenty fifteen. And of course, 2016, when he won the title, actually didn't make didn't make the top 50, which uh, shows how the, these lists can uh, can be a little bit unusual. Anybody want to throw in any other names? Incidentally, actually, while I think of it, I was just looking at our uh, what I called our relegation zone in the end. The, the people on the long list that didn't make it, and there, here's a great example of of a driver that suffered through circumstances. Hiraki Ashura, Super Formula champion in Japan. Now, the Super Formula season was never concluded that the, the double header at Suzuka was was stormed off so to speak and it was going to be him versus Gasly and because that championship never finished we never saw whether Ishiura could hold off Gasly who was strong in the second half of the season because we said well if if he loses out to Gasly then probably he shouldn't make the list because he had the advantage of experience but if he'd had a mega last round and beaten Gasly you could have made a stronger argument for him to go in and if Gasly had finished his super formula season and won the title maybe he'd have been a few places higher up and it it's not their fault that the, the weather conditions didn't didn't let them race, but it shows how these things can uh, can influence matters. So, has anybody got any other objections? Well, the only one I was going to mention was was Calamala as the other as the as the the fourth of our mega British young talents at the moment who didn't quite make it in. But and I suspect if he had won Macau, which he you know he was leading the final until he had a crash with um, with Ericsson, you know, for the lead, he he might have. I think that might have been enough to to edge him in. Um. It's probably not quite a good enough season. Obviously, it looks bad because he was at Prima, which dominated last year. I think the circumstances 
did change, but I think he was a yeah he he could probably feel a bit aggrieved not to have squeaked in. Another driver who uh, who was on the was on the long list and was uh, discussing. In fact, I think the if you want Macau caveat was was put against him because that could have you know Macau is one of those races that can can define a a season. Who knows? Would have Ferdinand Hamsberg been in there? Had he managed to keep out of the wall after passing Sergio Sacamara? Who knows? That might have actually been a harder one to argue than um, than Tixon, funnily enough, because he had obviously Tixon had success elsewhere. Well, for those who had questions about our top 50, hopefully we've answered some of them. I'm sure there's plenty of fury and, and disagreement, so let us know via social media, either on Facebook, you can find us there, or at Autosport on Twitter. For those who haven't seen the full list, either pick up a copy of Autosport's Christmas Double Issue, which is on sale in the UK until December the 27th. It's also available as a Digimag. Or head to autosport.com forward slash top hyphen 50 hyphen drivers hyphen of hyphen 2017 to check it out links like that really don't read well you've, you've got to do something about that glenn for next year remember, yeah because it's glenn's fault obviously he's the editor of autosport.com it's his fault now remember it's Auto- been a lot worse until recently that's the tidy version <laughs> exactly exactly yeah or just just search for it in google like any other human being would do <laughs> <laughs> And remember, Autosport never sleeps, so keep checking Autosport.com for all the latest news and in-depth features and all that plus subscriber area as well. Glenn will be manning the website 24 hours a day over the over the Christmas period. Yeah, this is the first he's heard of it, though. Single-handedly. Exactly, <laughs> exactly yeah, just doing it all the time. There'll also be a new issue of Autosport magazine out on Thursday, December the 28th. Check out sister titles, F1 Racing, Motorsport News, Motorsport.com. And don't forget to book your tickets for Autosport International at autosportinternational.com. You see, Glenn, that's an easy URL to read out on a podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Feeling stuck in your current job? Looking for a career pivot? Are you a proven leader looking to step up? The University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business prepares students to meet challenges, solve problems, and obtain a profound understanding of how to operate in the modern economy. With MBA and MS programs offering flexible options to fit your lifestyle and goals. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more today at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired. Fearless. Unstoppable. Sports Social Podcast Network. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.